this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Geraldine Farr, The Story of an American Singer, written by Geraldine Farr and published in 1916 by Houghton Mifflin Company. Chapter 10. My Fourth Season The month of June found me in Paris, where I sang at a charity concert, and in August I went to Bayreuth for the first time and was greatly moved by Parseval. On August 12th, my diary says, Today I placed a laurel wreath on the grave of Liszt. In October 1904, before the opening of the regular season in Berlin, I went to fulfill a special engagement in Warsaw. An incident characteristic of the impetuous Poles occurred on the train, which resulted in more than a year's annoyance of rather an amusing character. My mother and I were traveling in a private compartment, with the door open on the main corridor of the train. A tall, handsome, bearded gentleman had passed that door no less than a dozen times. Finally he passed, just at the moment when my mother wished the train porter to change German gold into Russian money. The porter did not have the change. Here was the chance of the bearded man's lifetime. He projected himself into the compartment, he made the change, he introduced himself gracefully and calmly announced that he knew me all the time as Die Fahrer aus Berlin, the singer, and he wished to do everything in his power to make us comfortable during our stay in Warsaw. He turned out to be Count Ischke P. Blank, a very wealthy nobleman with a most romantic temperament, and also with the persistence of flypaper. We could not disengage ourselves from his courtesy on the train, and he became doubly irksome when he bombarded my apartments in the Hotel Bristol, the magnificent hostelry, by the way, which Paderewski built and owns in Warsaw, sending me flowers, sweetmeats, candies, and even attempting to send me jewelry. The poor Count Ischke wanted me to look with favor upon his suit. Never outside the pages of a novel have I met anyone quite so ardent in so many languages. The climax came one afternoon when I was reading in my apartment. There was a knock at the door. It opened instantly, and in came a procession of bellboys, each carrying flowers, enormous boxes of candy, or tributes of some kind, all these were carefully deposited at my feet without a word. Then, as the boys withdrew, the Count Ischke himself, faultlessly dressed, entered and threw himself upon his knees before me in the midst of his offerings. It was a perfect setting for the stage. I had all I could do to keep serious as the Polish Count poured out the story of his mad love, and declared that, unless I would marry him, he would quickly die the death of a madman. I fear I am only a cold, heartless American girl, I replied. 
I love only my art, and I shall never marry anybody. The night I left Warsaw, the poor Count Ishki was at the station to see me off, and, though I felt sorry for him, I was happy at escaping from so trying an emotional character. For almost a year, however, he followed me over Europe, popping up most unexpectedly at different places, always with a renewed declaration of his love. His attentions at Monte Carlo finally became so embarrassing that I threatened to appeal to the police. Then he ultimately accepted his congé, and I was relieved of this all-too-ardent nobleman. The season of 1904-05 in Berlin, my fourth season, was made notable by the first appearance there of Caruso, who made his debut in Rigoletto. His coming created a great sensation. I was delighted to sing opposite him again, but there was a complication of which the public knew nothing. With the king of tenors singing on the stage with me, I knew there was another, Franz Naval, who had sung opposite me for three seasons, sitting in a box in the background. However, I compromised with the two by usually having tea with Franz and dinner with Enrico during his stay in Berlin, and the artistic world rolled smoothly on. Many interesting things happened during my fourth season in Berlin. For one thing, the marriage of the crown prince to the grand duchess Cecile took place, thereby permanently putting an end to the little annoyances to which his kindly admiration of me as an artist had subjected me. I am proud and happy to state that soon after the return of the royal couple to the palace at Potsdam, I was invited to sing for the crown princess, and, as a result of this meeting, a cordial and friendly intimacy sprang up between us, which often led to informal musicales at the palace, when the crown princess played the piano, the crown prince the violin, and I sang." The spring of 1905 found me once more in Monte Carlo, where a notable performance was the premiere of Saint-Saëns' La Nettre, in which I created the role of Margarita. During this spring engagement, I created another role, the title part in Mascagni's Amica. Preparations for the opera had been well underway for some time, Calvé having been engaged for Amica. Five days before the premiere, she withdrew for reasons which were never explained to me. Gunsberg appealed to me as a favor to help him out, if possible, and create this very difficult role. I agreed, and by working day and night I succeeded in preparing it in time for the performance. At this special performance, Gatti Casazza, who was then director of La Scala at Milan, heard me sing for the first time. But all he recalls, he says, were a pair of eyes and a very tempestuous young person. One night during this spring season in Monte Carlo, I caught sight of a familiar face in the recesses of a stage box, and, for the curtain call, I made the royal salute to this box. After the curtain fell, everyone started to make fun of me. We have no royalty in Monte Carlo, one said. Pardon me, I replied, but I shall always give the royal salute when King Oscar of Sweden is in the audience.
It was indeed his majesty who had timed his visit to Monte Carlo so that he could hear me sing, as he said he would. The next morning I read in the newspapers that the king of Sweden, traveling incognito as Count Haga, was visiting Monte Carlo as the guest of the Prince of Monaco. In Monte Carlo even royalty mingles with the crowd, and so it happened that later in the day I encountered His Majesty strolling along in a smart gray suit, with an alpine hat and stick, looking for all the world like some preposterous American banker seeing Europe on a vacation. His Majesty was kind enough to entertain both my mother and me at dinner several times during this engagement in Monte Carlo. The fact that I created the title role in Amica in five days was duly telegraphed to Paris and other cities, and led directly to a most spectacular engagement in the French capital, which must be recorded as my Parisian debut. A certain Count Camondo, a wealthy patron of the arts who made Paris his home, had written the music to an operatic libretto by Victor Capul entitled The Clown. Count Camondo came to Monte Carlo, engaged the entire Monte Carlo Opera Company, including me, as I had special leave of absence from the Kaiser for the occasion, at an exorbitant figure to sing three performances of the new opera in Paris, all proceeds to go to charity. Count Camondo paid all expenses, staged the opera lavishly, and we sang the three performances to crowded houses at the Théâtre Régent, Paris. At last I had sung in grand opera in Paris, even if only for charity. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.